0: Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the Restoration. So, uh... This is our final segment with Matt Harris, and he's just been a delightful person to have on. Just a little bit of background about him. M- Matthew Harris is a professor of history at Colorado State University, Pueblo. He's the author of The Founding Fathers and the Debate Over Religion in Revolutionary America. This is a book that he's edited called Thunder of the right, From the Right, which uh, it deals with Ezra Taft Benson, and there's different essays in the book, which is very interesting. Uh, the book that we're actually reviewing is uh, Watchmen on the Tower, Ezra Taft Benson, and the Making of the mormon right and there's a copy right there which you're going to send me you keep on promising me so i'll get it i'm looking forward to adding it to my collection here and uh everything so that's the book and uh you know i i've read it i got the pdf of it and it's uh quite a re and it's well documented i just want to stress this to everybody who's a fan of ezra Tef banson you can check the footnotes and then you can check the sources so if you have any issues uh with anything that's matt saying you know, go to the sources first. Why don't you check those first before you pass judgment? And then you'll be fully informed and you'll get to know Ezra Tef banson a little bit better. Right? And that's what we want to do is educate and learn and, and <clears throat> get the full picture of things. So here we are now. It's the 1970s, okay? And we're entering into the 1970s. We're, we're moving out of the period of time when, you know, he was toying with the idea of becoming president um something significant because david o mccabe will soon be out of the picture and we also are entering the 70s And let's just give a little background here we have uh, the watchtower society saying that the world was going to come to an end in 1975 the worldwide church of god which was herbert w uh, herbert armstrong's church they were saying the world was going to come to an end in 1975 the book that sold the most copies of any book secular or uh, religious in 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 the decade of the 70s was called the late great planet earth by hal lindsey so this is the era that we're entering into where we have vietnam still raging it's starting to they're starting to uh wind that down a little bit but you have uh, the 60s just ended you had all the racial riots you had the assassinations and you have this anticipation that things in this country something's going terribly wrong And this is felt in the evangelical community. This is felt in in all the branches of the restoration, especially the Utah branch. And so this is the world that we're in now is the 1970s. And we're gonna start there and then we're gonna wind it up and take it all the way to the end of President Benson's uh, term. So Matt, that's the world that Ezra Taft Benson's in. And he uh, is talking at conferences, uh, talking about different things. He's written a book called An Enemy Hath Done This. Um these are electric times to be alive and also very scary times for people who are maybe conservative or uh, deeply religious. And so let's just talk about that, Matt.
1: Yeah. So Benson, um, in previous episodes, we talked about how Benson felt that he was called by the church president, who Mormons rever as a, an apostle or prophet rather. To to speak out against communism and big government and socialism. Benson saw those as two two heads of the same coin. Communism, big government, it's all the same to him. Throw in the Democratic Party, throw in some socialism, it's all the same. And um, anyway, so he felt called to do this. This is what led to his interest in politics after he left the cabinet, why he wanted to run for the presidency. What a better way to use a platform to roll back the excesses of the welfare state and civil rights if you're the president. Well, anyway, um, so he often spoke in general conference uh, about communism and also civic to civic organizations as we've discussed. And um, because of his relentless promotion of the Burt Society, dozens of Latter-day Saints complained to the church president about Benson's politicking in, at church. They, 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 they wanna hear about Jesus and the atonement and the scriptures and all of these things. And Elder Benson was turning these into political screeds. I think this is an important distinction to make. If you were to talk to Ezra Taft Benson today, he did not believe that you could make a separation between the sacred and the profane. There was not a difference between politics and spiritual matters. He saw them as really the same thing. And the reason is, is because communism and big government, it took away somebody's uh, free agency. And that meant that it made you slaves to your government, Right? if the government was giving you something, stuff you'd become dependent upon them. And that was a violation of something that Mormons hold sacrosanct, which is free agency, the ability to choose for yourself the decisions that you make in life. And so um, and Benson also thought that, of course, there's there's this duality that courses throughout human history between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And as an apostle in his church, a Christian church, he had to push back against these dark forces that communism and socialism and welfare programs and civil rights So that's what what gave him the impetus to do what he did. President McKay died in 1970, January 1970. And when President McKay died, Benson um, could no longer talk about his mission. His, His colleagues in the 12, his colleagues in the church presidency, they no longer allowed him to speak in public about these political issues that McKay let him do. McKay was not happy with the Burt Society and told him not to talk about the Burt Society any longer after so many complaints. But Benson could still talk about politics and so forth. But when McKay died, the success of church presidents put the kibosh on it. And Benson was furious. Here he thought he had this apostolic charge to warn the saints against communism. And now other church presidents are not allowing him to do it. It becomes a problem. And I I think this is an, a uh, really, really critical um, inflection point in LDS church history because by 1978, after you know, dozens of evangelicals and even Benson, they're talking about the end times, they've seen the Vietnam War and the rise of the welfare state, the country's in debt, there's uh, urban strife in cities over civil rights, and all kinds of issues. Well, they're all predicting the end times, Benson included. and. Um, Benson um, uh, recognizes because other church presidents have talked to him in private and they told him they said you can no longer talk about these things because it hurts the church it harms the church and by that they meant that if you're calling Dr. King a communist that won't allow us to do missionary work in Africa in black Africa and you would think that before the age of Twitter and social media that maybe what said in the United States might not make its way to Africa, but it did. And believe it or not, my next book talks about some of this stuff, is that people in Africa were well aware of what Benson had said and other Mormon leaders about Blacks. And so anyway, you can't disparage Dr. King um, and expect to find success in Black Africa. You cannot find success as a church in Northern Europe or Canada or any other socialist country or area of the world, if you equate anybody who's a socialist with Satan. You just can't do it, so stop. And Benson, actually he pushes back in the 1970s hard on this stuff. And the church president in the 1970s is a beloved Mormon president named Spencer W. Kimball, who was called into the Quorum of the 12 Apostles, the same year as Benson, 1943. And the only reason why Benson was not the church president in the 70s is because Kimball outranked him in the quorum. It's all based on seniority. And Kimball was ordained first to to the apostleship in 1945, and then Benson followed. So anyway, Kimball told Benson, stop with the politics. You're harming the church, both with Black Africa and both with socialist countries in Northern Europe. By the way, many of whom love socialism in Northern Europe. Latter-day Saints today love socialism. I just got off the phone last week with a, a high-ranking person in the Canadian government. He's now retired. Good Latter-day Saint man. Socialist to the from head to toe. And of course, he has some harsh things to say about Benson, about his views about socialism, because this guy loves socialism, loves socialized medicine, everything it offers him and his fellow countrymen. Anyway, so, so Kimball, um, reigns him in. And Kimball's a little guy. He's not a large man. And Benson thinks that he can take advantage of him. And he pushes the envelope with Spencer Kimball. And Benson in the 1970s is the number two guy in charge of, in church leadership. He's the most, the second most senior apostle. The reason why that's significant is because he's the church president in waiting. When Kimball dies, Benson is the guy. That's how it works. In the Mormon church, nobody prays um, or the church leaders, they don't pray to figure out who the next apostle will be. This isn't like a papal conclave, right, where they debate and hash it out. That's not how it works. Everybody knows who the next president is when a church president dies because it's the most senior apostle. That's how the succession works. Anyway, so basically it's the guy who outlives all of his contemporaries in the Quorum of the Twelve. That's really what it means. It's longevity. It rewards longevity. And so uh, Benson pushes the envelope with Kimball, and in February 1980, Benson gave this controversial address at BYU, it's called 14 Fundamentals in Following the Prophet, and there are two points in that that really irritate the liberals in the church. One is that the prophet could speak to the church in civic matters, including politics, and two, the words of current prophets are more important than the words of dead prophets, and the liberals write President Kimball, they just flood the First Presidency with letters. How could he say this? And the reason why they're upset is because they, they're witnessing, or at least they think they're witnessing that President Elder Benson is now sending a clarion call that when he becomes the president, that the church is going to align with right-wing politics. And the liberals are furious. And Kimball, by the way, who's a, very, who's a conservative Republican, Um, doesn't think the church should align with right-wing politics. They're not a fan of the moral majority. They're not a fan of what the evangelicals are doing. This is one way how they differ a little bit. They don't want to come out and endorse someone like Ronald Reagan, right? Even though they will privately support Reagan, they don't want the church to go on record supporting any one candidate because they're trying to cast a, a broader tent. They recognize it's good to save souls if you can not just affiliate or align yourself with one political party. They think it will hurt the church. Anyway, so Benson gives a speech. Kimball calls him in in private, and he has him apologize to each of the member of the Quorum of the Twelve in a meeting. And it's it's completely humiliating to this senior apostle in waiting, this president in waiting. And Kimball didn't think it was sufficiently contrite, so he has him come back the next week and apologize to not only the Twelve Apostles again, but all of the General Authority Seventies, which are dozens. So this massive meeting. He has to get up a second time and apologize. And the church president is thoroughly humiliating. him. And so when Benson becomes the president in 1986, Stephen, uh, the church, actually November of 85, the um, he's been reigned in pretty good. And a lot of people in the church, I've heard this from dozens of people, I grew up with this as well, which is, They think that Benson had become sort of mild or tame when he was the president. He got rid of the Birch rhetoric and he was no longer focused on politics. He was just focused on the ministry. None of that's true. And in fact, I tell people the first thing that Benson did at least within two weeks of being ordained to the church as church president, he contacted his friends at the Birch Society and said, can you send my two counselors and my secretary the new American magazine? That's the first thing he does within two weeks. And they're angry. They just say, a guy named Gordon Hinckley, in particular, his outspoken first counselor, he said, I don't want this garbage. So Hinckley wrote John McManus, who's now the John Birch Society president. Uh, Robert Wells died in 1985, just about the same time that Benson became the president. And so McManus had, had, um, was one of the successors. And uh, McManus knew Benson. And McManus, um, he, he told me that story. He said, Hinkley wrote in and said, counsel it, we don't want it. And then the Birch log, this is this weekly assortment of Birch ideas that John McManus himself had been writing since the early seven, late 60s, early 70s. Benson wanted the Birch log to be sent to each general authority. And McManus told me that several general authorities called or contacted him saying, we don't, don't send us this stuff. And I wanna just be clear on something. This is the high church leadership. They are, most of them are not liberals. In fact, on paper, they're probably conservative Republicans, but they they fear the dangers of right-wing extremism in the church. And I know we'll talk about Bo Grights and some of those folks in just a second, but um, during Benson's presidency, um, Gordon Hinckley, his outspoken first counselor, is trying to move the church to the center right because it, it's it just cast a wider net to prospective converts. And you see this, really this me- this titanic struggle um, between Benson and some of his allies, and with some other leaders in the Quorum of the Twelve. One of the most conservative uh, members of the Apostles, at least theologically in recent years, was a guy named uh, Boyd K. Packer, who was called into the Quorum of the Twelve in the early 1960s. He just passed away in 2015, and he was good friends with Benson, but in 1989, Um, Boyd Packer was in Salt Lake, he was driving around, and he stopped at a medical clinic. And um, one of his boyhood friends, a guy named Malcolm Jepson from Brigham City, Utah, was the doctor there. And Apostle Packer went into Dr. Jepson, his boyhood friend, and he interrupted him while he was with a patient. And the secretary said, Elder Packer from the church is here. Of course, this is Utah, so you could just say the church and everyone knows what you're talking about. Elder Packer from the church is here. He needs to see you ASAP. So Dr. Jepsen left the meeting, met privately with Elder Packer. And Elder Packer said, I've been driving around Salt Lake, and the Holy Spirit has told me to stop and talk to you today and to tell you to not join the John Burt Society. This is 1989, three years into Benson's church presidency. And Dr. Jepsen said, why? And uh, you have nothing to worry about. I'm not going to join. But but Why? And Packer said, you'll find out soon enough. Two weeks later, Elder Packer called his boyhood friend, Dr. Jepsen, into the second quorum of the 70, which is like a fourth tier general authority. Um, it's a three-year term. And of course, Dr. Jepsen learned when he was called into church leadership. Why? Because if he was a member of the birth society, it would have been disqualified. They would not have called him. The church is trying to move away from right-wing extremism. And that is one of the many examples that I can share with you.
0: Yeah, well, we covered a lot there. Uh, we went in the 70s going right up to the uh, tail end of his presidency. And I'm really glad you gave us that overview. We, we could
1: circle back, though.
0: Yeah, well, I actually was going to talk about the some of the stuff. And you, you covered it, which is great. And you and, and did a wonderful job covering it. Um, let's see here. Um, OK, I guess, I guess this would be an appropriate time to maybe talk about the legacy a little bit. Because um, we have seen a resurgence of uh, support and uh, for for Ezra Taft Benson. Um, You know, if I go on YouTube, I see a lot of people uh, making what would be considered inspirational videos with with his quotes and imagery and all that kind of stuff. Um, There seems to be a resurgence of uh, people embracing uh, President Benson Um, and really kind of Glenn Beck kind of put him on the forefront shortly uh, right around the time that Barack Obama became president. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were a lot of people who had just, uh, I guess Beck ran something on Fox News where he would intersperse Ezra Taft Benson and then Barack Obama and kind of contrast them. So even within evangelical circles and right-wing circles uh, who may have not been too aware of him, he was kind of reintroduced to the American public in the late aughts. And so he's so it's not insignificant that the... This book that you have written um, has come out. We also know that I think you had mentioned that there are a handful of books that are being written about the John Birch Society as we speak that are going to be coming out in the next year or two. Uh, So we understand that you know uh, what we've seen in this country over the last 12 years or so, 12, 13 years, is a lot of what was happening in the 60s and 70s within the conservative movement and within just American society in general has reemerged. And so, with that reemerging of those political ideas, we see a reemergence of Ezra Taft Benson. And so, there's been a lot of people embraced him. A lot of Latter-day Saints uh, started t- listening to his teachings and started regurgitating them and speaking a very similar language, like Julie Rowe and other people like that. And so now we've seen this him take a re. This is a very long question, I know, but this reasurgence of uh, reemergence, if you will of the powerful the president benson the power that he still holds in the church and the uh, the sway that he still holds 20 something years after his death is really remarkable and kind of unique for uh for this time Uh, so let's just just kind of comment on that um what kind of influence he's having now today in in the modern church
1: no i don't know you know you might be random Stephen. i'm not sure if I would characterize it as a resurgence, because that means it sort of died down or ebbed a little bit, and now it's back up. I don't know if it ever went away um, because when, when Hinckley, President Hinckley, the outspoken first counselor, who would himself become the church president in 1995, so just a year after Benson died, um, Hinckley was doing a lot of this stuff in private. And for example, um, this whole Burt Society stuff with Malcolm Jepson, I told you about. That, the the Latter Day Saint Church, as a whole, did not know about this. This, and I didn't know about it, but I got a hold of Malcolm Jepson's diary. His daughter gave it to me. So, I, I'm, as a scholar, I'm privy to these kinds of things. But um, the church was not denouncing the Burt Society over in General Conference. They were doing it very subtly because they're they they do not want to lose their members, their right wing members. And um, but they are denouncing it. They are pushing back. And in 1992, there was a series of purges that the Boston Globe, New York Times picked up on. And they were getting rid of the most, I'm just going to say it, the most radical of the Latter-day Saint groups, the survivalists and the people who would have a five or 10-year supply of food. The church counseled one year for hard times, probably wise counsel given COVID and other things. Um, But they're they're doing five and 10 years. They're stockpiling weapons. The church never said to stockpile weapons. So they're blowing up these conservative principles, and the church is very uncomfortable with it because um, this is what attracts Bo rights to the church, this very fringy. Um, Bo Greitz is a former Green Brave, some of your listeners may know, converts to Mormonism in 1984, um, and he lives in Nevada, which is also a very conservative enclave of Mormons, um, and he finds a kindred soul in President Benson and he visits with President Benson and certainly he wants Benson to bless his presidency on this populist party ticket. Now you've got you know George Bush and Ross Perot and you've got Bo and the church handlers. When I say handlers, I'm talking about the bureaucrats and the PR people. They don't want Bo anywhere near Benson. They don't want John McManus of the Bird Society near him because they're trying to modernize the church. Now Benson, Benson wants these people. He likes them. He feels a kindred spirit with them. But the church is moving one way, and Benson is still stuck back in the '60s. And um, certainly, it's the handlers who win the day. And anyway, so they're 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 trying to shut off the church president from some of these radical voices. And anyway, so he died in 19. Oh, let me back up. Um, a lot of there are some people who who get purged, Latter-day Saints, and they accuse President Hinckley of, of uh, censoring President Benson, of ignoring his wishes. And the reason why they accused him of it is because Hinckley is running the church because Benson is in frail health for much of his presidency, particularly by 1990 on until he dies in 94. At one point he had tubes up his nose, he was in a rocking chair and couldn't even speak. So Hinkley is indeed running the church and people are criticizing Hinckley you're suppressing Benson this is not what he would want and so Hinkley and Monson is the other counselor they're, they're getting these criticisms and the criticisms are true they are they they're modernizing the church and they're doing subtle things like they're changing the church handbook to suggest that it's okay to accept government assistance latter-day saints don't become dependent upon it but it's okay to do that if you need it and Benson, that might be one of the most terrible things that, that could happen is that a latter-day saint would accept a government subsidy that is anathema to mormon theology according to benson so his counselors are doing all kinds of things like this and um they you know they also said something that if you uh they said this they had a general authority say this in idaho and utah um, this general authority said that you know you're an apostasy this is at a state conference of Latter-day Saints. You know you're in apostasy if you affiliate with the John Burt Society. And this is President Benson, who had always attested to the vitality of the Burt Society. He said it was the best organization to fight communism, and God had approved it. That's how powerful and um, uh, committed to Benson was to the Burt Society. And that's why Robert Welch said that Mormons make good Burgers. That was in the 60s. And here you have in the early 90s a top-ranking Mormon leader named Gordon Hinckley going around and having another leader say that if you are a Mormon and you you align with the Birch Society, you're an apostasy. And of course, the Birch Mormons freak out and they're angry. So anyway, the church is moving its 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 really its, its foundation quite a bit under Hinckley. And then you get this other Mormon convert named Glenn Back who like a lot of conservatives, bothered by the fact there's was a black man, not just a black man, but a liberal, you know, an activist, a community organizer, who's now the president. And for a conservative like Beck, that's just too much. And this is where you get all the birther conspiracy nonsense, right? It's like, you know, they produce this long form birth certificate in Hawaii, but in the, the, um, the congressmen from Hawaii, both attest that it's legit, but that's not good enough for anybody. I mean, they just—they're just committed to their conspiracy theories. But anyway, um, so Glenn Beck becomes a Mormon. Um, he's on CNN at the time, and he starts to resurrect some of Benson's old speeches against Nikita Khrushchev and also communism. And Glenn Beck, being the kind of colorful guy that he is, how he speaks with flair, his listeners lap this up. They've never heard of Ezra Taft Benson before. So Beck almost overnight makes Ezra Taft Benson. This is an Two thousand eight oh nine makes Benson a, a household name to non-Mormon audiences, and also it wasn't just Benson; it was Benson's close friend, a guy named Cleon Skousen that uh, that Beck talked about. Beck said that Skousen's books changed his life. It says this on air.
0: Ten, the ten thousand yeah. year leap that he, I know, you know, and it's interesting and. Uh, it's, it's, it's really important because I remember this time because there were evangelicals all over the country that were making time to watch Glenn Beck. So Glenn Beck was introducing them to people like Ezra Taft and Kleon Skousen. I, I've, I've been in people's homes where the 10,000-year leap is in their bookshelf, evangelicals. And, but also what Glenn was doing, it was he was having John Hagee and a famous Christian televangelists and, and figures come on his show as well. So that's where we saw like a, a lot of evangelicals were introduced to Mormonism and Ezra Taff Benson through Glenn Beck. So And so his show was huge in the evangelical community. At its peak, it was probably more watched than anything on Christian television amongst evangelicals.
1: Well, so Skousen isn't just big in Mormon circles. Oh, I right, mean, right. Skousen's written dozens of books, much of which deals with Mormon theology. Yeah. But he also wrote a book on the US Constitution, albeit from a Mormon flair, that mm-hmm. the founding fathers were inspired. Mormon scripture says that. Um, but his book on the Constitution, the state of Texas had adopted it in their school district in the 1980s. Now, this guy's not a scholar. And it's a terrible book. I teach the Constitution. And when I say terrible, it, it, it just glosses over slavery, it says that, that Black children were happy to be slaves. He calls them pickaninnies, which is a terrible thing to say. I mean, it's racist. It's full of factual errors. And this is what, this is what Texas adopts. And uh, a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning scholar from Stanford named Jack Rakove, um, his book that won, won in the Pulitzer was on the Constitution. And um, when somebody got a hold of Skousen's book in Texas and said, you realize this is racist. Why are we using this book in our classrooms? And, you know, he's calling blacks pickaninnies. He says that they're happy to be slaves. Complete nonsense, right? And uh, they asked Rakoff to review the book. So Rakoff writes a scathing review, and he says, this guy is not qualified to do this. He said, this book is not worth a warm uh, pitcher of spit. That's what he said. It's not worth worth a warm pitcher of spit. And um, anyway, he's a, he's, a, he's a right-wing ideologue, scousin, And that's how he looked at the founding And of course, with Edmund Meese and Original Intent, he was into that idea of interpretation of the Constitution. But Beck loves this stuff because of the politics, because of theology, and the way that Skousen merges them together under one cosmic whole. And so overnight, Skousen's books are number one on Amazon.com. The guy had been dead for two years by that point, he'd sort of reached a sort of an ebb in the Mormon community. Most of Skousen's high point would have been, say, in the late 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. And church leaders push back on him, too, which is another conversation for another day. But anyway, they're pushing back against right-wing extremism. Glenn back introduces Benson to a, and Skousen to a larger audience. And then when the age of the internet, you get um, these, these clubs at BYU called the Gadiatin. Robbers Club. This is a trope from the Book of Mormon about conspiracies. So they're popping up these clubs. You can see some of their stuff on YouTube. Um, Book of Mormon Prophets had foretold the winding up scene in which Democrats and liberals would introduce communism to the country, anti-UN tropes, just all this nonsense. And um, so anyway, Beck plays a a powerful role. And then you get um, people like Julie Rowe, this... um, a woman, Latter-day Saint woman from Arizona. She's since moved. But she, uh, she was influenced by a sermon that Benson had given in the early 1980s on, on food storage. And Benson was a massive proponent of food storage, in which that there would be calamitous times, as foretold by both the Bible and the Book of Mormon, and that Mormons, as well as citizens in general, should be ready for these calamitous times. They should have a year's supply of food storage. They should have some uh, a, a reserve of cash in the bank in case they needed it, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Julie Rowe is influenced by this, and she has a series of visions, she claims, near-death experiences in 2003, and she claims that that she was seen, shown the winding up scene in which foreign invaders would come to the United States, and communists had infiltrated the United Nations, and Basically, it's all of this John Birch Society stuff is what it is. And she publishes this in a couple of three books in 2014. So she has a vision in 03, publishes it over a decade later. And Mormon extremists, they lap this stuff up. And if you go on her webpage, I think she's taken it down. But when I was reading her books, I thought, my goodness, this is all Benson stuff. But she doesn't mention it. And I went on her webpage and I saw the most prominent general authority that she quoted was Benson in his sermons and also Burt's stuff. And I might add um, Ammon Bundy and his brother, the guys who took over federal property in Oregon a couple of years ago, Stephen, they were both Benson and Skousen devotees. Um, the, you, you may have heard of the New York Times bestselling book called Educated by Tara Westover. And for your listeners, if you've heard of this book, it's, or if you haven't, it's about a, a young woman who grew up in a very uh, conserved community in um, a mountainous town in Idaho. I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, she was homeschooled. Her parents didn't believe in doctors. They didn't get her vaccinated. They didn't even have a birth certificate, as I recall. Um, Anyway, they were anti-government. And so her parents had, they, they had stored a bunch of guns and ammo for the end times. They were really extremist Mormons. And uh, the book is about how Tara Westover had grown up in that that really radical, extremist community. I don't want to say conservative because that gives conservative Mormons a bad name. A lot of conservative Mormons who do not believe like the Westover family. But anyway, um, so this Tara Westover went to BYU and her dad was suspicious about BYU. There are commies and socialists there. This is a church university and he's calling them commies and socialists. Benson had once said that back in the 60s. There are too many communist professors at BYU, which is comical, because BYU is one of the most conservative universities in the United States. Anyway, um, Tara Westover goes to BYU, Stephen, and she's in a world civ class, and the professor asks about the Holocaust. And Westover raises her hand, and she says, what's the Holocaust? And he says something like, this is no subject to joke around about. She said, no, I'm not joking. What is the Holocaust? She had never learned what the Holocaust was growing up. That's how children she was from. But she's a bright, bright person, did well at BYU, had some growing pains, but did well at BYU and went on to receive a PhD at Cambridge University in history and um, got a big scholarship. Anyway, the upshot of the story is this. If you read this best-selling book, she rarely talks about Mormonism. She identifies as a Mormon, but it's not about her Mormon culture, her theology. It's about her family growing up in this radical home. Her publishers had told her, look, Leave out Mormonism, you'll get more readers. You'll get the Mormon readers if you do that. If you criticize the Mormon church, you're gonna get you're gonna lose a chunk of your readership. It was brilliant counsel. So, but you read the way she was raised. Her dad was anti-UN. He read the protocols of the Elders of Zion. Does this sound familiar to you? So you get all these Benson and Scousen tropes. And so when I read the book, I I wrote her an email and I said, told her who I was. And I said, This sounds like Benson and Scousen. I know you didn't say it, but this, this is what I'm reading. And she writes back, oh, my dad loved those two people. He was a member of the Bursa Society. He loved them. And anyway, um, so Tara Westover writes this best-selling book, and it's got Benson and Skousen's fingerprints all over it. And for reasons we probably shouldn't get into here, she'll eventually leave the church Westover and no longer affiliates with being a Mormon. Um, but anyway, but Benson's legacy is huge with some of these right-wing extremists. and uh, these Trump people you, you mentioned a minute ago, Utahns, I can't remember the, the latest number that I saw, but Utahns overwhelmingly support Trump and other Mormons do too, in the South in particular. And it poses a huge challenge for the church because again, the church has been trying to move away from right-wing extremism for at least two decades by now. In this last general conference in April, It was Easter, so obviously most of the sermons were geared towards Jesus and in the resurrection and so forth, as one would expect, given the the church's mission and all of that. But one of the, the talks was not focused on Easter. It was given by, in my opinion, the most important person in church leadership today. He's the first counselor in the first presidency, and he will be the church president soon, I'm assuming that the church, current church guy who's now 95 or six probably won't make it too much longer. But Dallin H. Oaks is his name. He's old himself. He's almost, I think he's 90 now. But Dallin Oaks gave a sermon in general conference in which he said that you don't have to belong to one party to be in good standing. That's what he said. Now that's a code word for, you don't have to be a Republican. So he's undoing Benson's rhetoric. And he also warned against conspiracy theories. He doesn't mention Trump. But he's really, really worried about, you know, conspiracy running the church. And let me give you one powerful example. I told you that the church leaders, they don't like to overtly condemn um, right-wing extremism because, by name anyway, they do it kind of subtly because they don't want to lose these members. But the church has, to my knowledge, they have not gone on record saying, everyone must get vaccinated. Instead, what they do is they do a passive approach um, Stephen, they 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 show pictures of themselves getting vaccinated. They're leading by example, of course. and and so but there's a ton of Mormons who don't want to get vaccinated. And when it's been recommended that they ought to get vaccinated to keep their congregations and their pews healthy and safe. Um, Facebook about, I don't know two months ago, a month ago, it showed dozens and dozens of Mormons ripping up their temple recommends, cutting them up. This is their, a little recommend that one is issued in good standing that allows them to go to the temple, which is the faith's most important rituals. And so they're ripping up these, these recommends because they don't wanna follow the church leaders in their guidance on getting vaccinated. And um, the church had published a piece, the, I think it was a PR piece from the church newsroom as it's called, it's essentially a PR thing. And they put it on the church's webpage and hundreds of people wrote in, this church is an apostasy, how dare they? because they, they see these vaccinations as being critical of Trump. And um, so anyway, this, you ask about Benson's legacy, we're seeing it now. This is Benson's legacy where they've taken these conspiracy theories, these Birch tropes that were promulgated by Benson and Skousen, and they have now you know tr- uh, transferred them to, to
0: QAnon and other
1: things. And the, the church leaders are deeply disturbed about this. Quite frankly, they don't know what to do about it, in my opinion.
0: It's a very, very fascinating time that we're living in right now, Matt. And, you know, I, uh, I see very, very similar things happening in the evangelical movement. Now, I just want to talk to the audience for a second here. Um, Matt was very critical of Ezra Taft Benson and critical of, of other people in this. And I know some of these people that he was critical of, you, you probably support and read their materials and everything like that. And I just want everybody to understand that this channel is a place where I want people to say their piece and give their perspective. And I, the channel was to give the full spectrum of the restoration, which means I have many progressive followers and I have many uh, Orthodox Mormon followers. And I just want to say all are welcome here. Okay, this is a safe place that we can have a, a safe space, as the kids like to say now, uh, have a conversation. And I just want you to just to challenge you to read the materials, read the pro and the con. I always say, look at both sides. It's really important. And I also want to say, if there's somebody out there who feels that that Ezra Taft needs to be defended and you've authored a book and it's been published, I mean, I'll be more than happy to have you on and we'll have a conversation. And because I really want to have this to be a balanced thing because, I mean, President Benson was a very, very important thing and he had a profound impact on many people's lives and that can't be discounted. So if there are people who felt that he did a great thing for them, I mean, I just want you to know, I acknowledge that and I understand it. And I just want you to know that this is not a channel that we're here to criticize the prophets or the brethren or anything like that. This is just truly to have a dialogue where we just put everything out on the table and have that conversation. Matt, um, I greatly appreciate you taking this time and, and having this conversation with me. I've learned a lot reading your book. I've spent, I've, I kind of felt like I've gotten to know you over the last few years because I watch, well, I watch a ton of podcasts and stuff, but, but, uh, you know, our good friend, Rick Bennett, of course, um, I watched a lot of his stuff. So I feel like I've really gotten to know you and now you've gotten to know me a little bit over the course of the last few days. And it's been a real pleasure getting to know you and having these conversations. I'm hoping that I'll be getting out to, to Utah soon. And uh, maybe the opportunity will come where we can maybe sit down and I guess uh, well we can't have a cup of coffee I guess we could uh, um, well we can have something I don't know either way just we'll just chat <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm a coffee drinker so <laughs> but, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so but we, am I
0: Stephen so we'll oh, have one together <laughs> okay okay so but but it was a real it was a real pleasure real education uh, it was really fascinating because you know this is the thing folks is that there are so many parallels between the world that I grew up in and the world that Matt grew up in and the world that you live in. And I think it's just so important that we have these conversations because I think so often the stereotypes and the prejudices that us evangelicals have had towards you are not good for us and they're not good for you. And so that's what this is all about, uh, building bridges and knocking down walls. Reminder to like and subscribe. Please leave your comments in the box and do the notification bell. And everybody, just have a safe summer and uh, enjoy life. Later.